All right, welcome everyone to the Preacher's Podcast for the second Sunday after Epiphany. Our series theme for Epiphany is uncovered. The thing that we're kind of stressing there is that God is so far above us. His ways are so beyond our comprehension that um, the truths about him, about the way he works in the world, can't really be discovered. They have to be revealed to us, kind of an Epiphany word. Uh, hence the theme uncovered, that, that is God is uncovering these truths to us uh, throughout the season of Epiphany. The theme for this specific day is delight uncovered. God delivers more than we ask, not less. In the promotional text that's provided in the worship plan, there's this fascinating question, this teaser question. Uh, is the pursuit of God and the pursuit of pleasure two separate paths? Um like is the Christian life kind of this aesthetic dry life and the sinner's life, the exciting life. Um, that's kind of what this delight and covered theme is getting at. I think um, our, our participants today are pastor Jonathan Borman of peace in Aiken, South Carolina, pastor Timothy Borman of sure foundation in New York, Dr. Alan Sorum, Wisconsin Lutheran seminary. I'm John Hine coordinator of Wells congregational services. Tim, I'm going to begin with you. Um, so in the worship plan, guys see the, the bigger arch of this entire series. Can you summarize then what are we, we're trying to, to have, help God's people take home with them on this particular Sunday? Well, I, th I think you said it really well, John, that we want people to go home delighted in, in the boundless goodness of God in Christ um, through the spirit and we're going to be living um, in between with our text in Ephesians I, I think we'll talk we're going to talk a lot about that but we're going to be living in between the gospel lesson where um, Mary imagines a world where when you run out of wine at a wedding and all you got is water that you can ask you can ask the son of God to to delight the wedding guests and um, to provide them with, with the best wine and um, to, to begin to live in that world. And then we'll, we'll live between the other Old Testament lesson, the first lesson from Isaiah, where God is simply stunned by the beauty of his church, his bride, and, and delights over her. And just to think about how contagious um, joy and delight really is when someone's delighted over you, you get delighted then. And so then we end up that in Ephesians. So I think that carries through all the lessons for the day. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, you touched on, it's fascinating that the first time Jesus reveals his glory, um, it's not in a, like a hospital healing people. It's at a celebration, a, a, a party, um, which is fascinating then because we passed over the gospel lesson and settled on Ephesians chapter three to drive this theme home. Jonathan, you want to explain to us why, why we picked this particular text to try and drive home this theme of delight uncovered. Well, there's a, there's another key word in, in the write-up that I think is helpful as we meditate on Ephesians and that's the word more. There's a line in there that says God delivers more than we ask, not less. And that's borrowing language straight from um, this lesson here in Ephesians. The other thing that I might point out is the connection between love and delight. 
in trying to pull that all together, I think is really important. So I, I want to point out three things. And first of all, I, I need to apologize to all our listeners because there is so much, there's so much in the scripture. It like, it, like my heart is overflowing after sitting with it and, and, and thinking about it. So I, I have so much I want to say about it and I can't say, I, I won't have time to deal with it all, but I do want to say three things. And so the first thing, the first more is this, that it delivers more spiritual life than you can possibly imagine, a fuller heart than you can possibly imagine. I, I'm pretty excited to hear what um, Professor Sorum has to say about that line, um, if he's going to cover this part in his little exegetical analysis. But what, is it, what does it even mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Like, wow, <laughs> that is that is something else. So there's more there. Um, secondly, um, I was just thinking about this from like a, a teaching standpoint, a, a theological lochi um, standpoint. And I, I, I mean, count them. I, I got four. There's probably more. Four theological sedes, um, uh, you know, seats of doctrine here. One would be the psychological effect of the word of God. That's a, There's a teaching on that in here. There's a teaching on that um, original, both original righteousness and restored righteousness are, are a gift from God. Um, thirdly, that there is neither um, complete knowledge of God in this life, nor, nor no knowledge of God in this life. Um, fourthly, the almighty power of God. I mean, there's, a, there's amazing language here in the Greek on the, the power of God. Like our, our dogmaticians, like Hallettes, he says about this verse, God can do all that is can do all that is possible to be done. I mean, just think about that language. Um, so there's more power, more love, more faith. Um, finally, this is a programmatic verse in the writings of Martin Luther, especially his you know Paul's um, doxology at the end, that you know God's power is more to do for us. Um, than, than we can even imagine. And just thinking about how true God is to his promises in Christ is something that we can all meditate on more. <laughs> so there's a little insight into why this is, I think, appropriate to choose. Yeah, it's packed. Dr. Sorum, the, the, the prayers that guys have listening to this have already done their text study. Um, so they've already gone through the Greek. You teach a lot of New Testament at the seminary. What are some of the biggest things that jump out to you in the Greek text? There are some exciting things. Uh, let me back up to chapter one, where Paul said in chapter one, in incredibly artistic form, that uh, we have unity with God because in Christ the Father uh, foreordained us, in Christ the, the blood of Christ has redeemed us, and in Christ the Holy Spirit has sealed us. So we have this this unity with God in Christ. And then in the second chapter, uh, Paul says that there used to be this dividing ceremonial law that that alienated Greeks uh, or Gentiles from Jews, but God did away with that. So he created uh, one new person in Christ, separating the divisions between human beings. And then in the, ch in the third chapter, Paul says, I get to be the, the apostle to the Greeks to share with them 
this incredible mystery, this mystery that there's this unity between God and humans and between Greeks and Jews, and that what this one, one person has is a bold, free access to God. Now look at our text, verse 14. Tutakarin, because of this, because of this free access that Paul boldly has, well, guess what he's going to do? He's going to make use of it. He's going to bend his knee, and he's going to pray. And to pick up on what both uh, Jonathan and Timothy said, what's he pray for? He prays uh, a prayer that from 14 to 18 is one sentence, okay? This is uh, it's called a periodic sentence. It's impossible for English speakers to really make sense of one sentence that goes on and on and on like this. But for Paul's Greek, what he tended to do was stack up, um, stack up dependent clauses, and he had the kicker at the end. Here's a great example, picking up, uh, especially on what you said, Jonathan. Um, Paul's going to make use of this amazing access he has to God, and he's going to pray that all of his people receive the full power of God to know Jesus completely. So that they know the breadth and the width and width and the depth of Jesus' love for them, so they can have a full measure of of Jesus' love in them. And now you look at that final dependent clause at the end of this long sentence, that they might have the fullness of God. There's your kicker, Jonathan. What is the fullness of God? Well. It, it, it's at least this, that you love like Christ and that you have the power of Christ. And talk about delight. How, would, how delighted would you be if I asked you, look, I can give you the full, the, I, can, I can ask God to give you the love of Jesus in you and the power of Jesus in you. And you think that's impossible. So what does, what does Paul say next? You're dealing with a God whose specialty is the impossible. To do so much more than you could possibly ask, he can do all of this for you. That's fantastic. Um, Tim, let me jump to you. Give me some initial thoughts about how you're thinking of, you know, and I think Jonathan nailed it. I mean, there's so much in, in here. Your initial thoughts about how you might handle this text. Well, well, first of all, I just want to say amen to what Professor Sorum said. Amen. I'm, I'm just <laughs> you going, whoa. You just got to get doxological amen. about it. Like, amen to that. And that that might be where you end up with the sermon. But I want to just share a couple frustrations and then share a little bit more about what, I, what I'm thinking about with this text. And I, I didn't have the benefit of thinking about this with, with Professor Sorum's guidance. Um, so that, that's going to be really helpful for me to think about when I read some of the grammar here, when, when I read a text like this, I want to know, like, what's the big point? And homiletically, like, right or wrong, homileticians are, we're right there where we want to have one big point for the sermon. Um, and so you kind of look in the grammar, and the henna clause is in there, and the infinitives are a little bit ambiguous, like, which one's the one that kind of rises to the top? And then on top of that, you have um, some of that mountaintop vocabulary where a sermon could really, like you could talk about being rooted in love. Like you could get stuck there for a whole sermon or 
you could talk about dwelling, letting, you know, the Christ dwelling in your hearts and do a whole sermon on that. But that you might say like, well, that doesn't really cover the text. So there, there's some, there's some problems in there as far as uh, homiletics. It, it's a little bit like um, drinking from a fire hose. I thought about it like that, or, or measuring the ocean with a thimble, like, um, or like the great Fred Craddock. He said that um, if you try to boil this a sermon down to theme and parts or something like that, you you boil it down so far that all you have is the stain at the bottom of the coffee cup. And that's kind of, I, I, I feel that sense of despair about <laughs> preaching this text because it is so great. But here, th- here's where I'm thinking, I've been thinking about um, this kind of sermon. Uh, and, and I think this is really a liturgical kind of sermon where you really lean into um, verse 20. And that's kind of where um, these texts have been, have, I think, are, have been leading us to. Where, where it says now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So that, that whole delight theme. And so I, I thought about the fact that he says in there that he's able to do more than we ask. And I, I don't know if you guys feel it, but I, I feel a tension in that. Um, because we've just asked with Paul for something and it's amazing like we have these three we have these three great petitions that we have power and knowledge and fullness right and then he says but god's gonna do more than that you know he's he's gonna do more than all we ask so if we think about if we could preach through that first part of the prayer and then say but god's gonna do more than that for you um and then you would then i thought about taking in the second part of the sermon, that word, imagine, he's going to do more than you can imagine. And then doing some more liturgical preaching on um, having an imagination that invites Jesus onto the scene. Like, what, what does it mean to be at a wedding where you run out of wine and to have the imagination that maybe Jesus can do something about it? And what does it mean that Jesus shows up at a funeral? And, and what does it mean that Jesus sits with you at your church council? Uh, what does it mean that Jesus is with families? And then to reimagine, like have a truly Christian imagination about what can God can do and has done in Christ. So that's, that. those are some of the thoughts that I've been thinking about. Um, you guys can crush it if you want, but... Jonathan, what about what about you? You want anything to add about, or how, how are you thinking of handling the text? Well, so there's a there's a tension, um, and and this kind of goes to the law gospel moves that you can make in the text. And so the, the first tension that that I think is is healthy to explore is here you have a Pastor Paul praying that his church would have faith when they already have faith. You know, he, Lord, put Jesus in their hearts and Jesus is already in their hearts. And I, I think there's a, there's a really valuable teaching there on, you know, helping people think pastorally about um, how Christ moves deeper into the heart 
um, even after conversion, the spirit is still convert converting us. He's still Christifying us. I, I, I think you can move real quick um, in, into a couple of different maladies um, and, and you can pick one. One, one malady um, would, would simply be that, um, I, you know, I'm bored with hearing Jesus about at church. Like, why does my church keep talking about Jesus? Why does, why does my pastor keep talking about it? And you're not delighting in Christ anymore. And there, there's a disconnect there and you, you can help um, sermonically people understand that. So that's one possible malady on the front end of this text. The other one is use, using that language of Christ dwelling in the heart, um, helping people see what it is that's actually dwelling in their hearts in the moment. Like I was thinking um, to help my church, what I might do is, is talk about how the heart is revealed in what you talk about. You know, out of the overflow of, of, of the heart, the mouth speaks like that kind of idea. And you can you can show people what it is that's dwelling in their hearts and develop that in a sermon. I think that's really important. And then you, you flip that and then and then bring them Jesus. So that's the front end of the text. Um, the, the back end of the text is, um, you know, you start with Jesus. I, I, I kind of look at the rooted language. I love the metaphors, the architectural metaphors, um, and then the agricultural metaphors. You have the root, so something's growing, and then you have the building, something's founded. Um, and then you, you start with Christ, you end with Christ, you don't ever move from Christ, that kind of language. You deepen in Christ, <laughs> and that's actually how you go up, if you think about it, um, in Christian life. But the back end of the text then is, is you live with Christ over and over and go the, the width, the length. And I'm, I'm kind of moving down what we're talking about to gospel stuff. I don't know. Do you want to do that right now? Sure, that's fine. Keep, keep going. Um, I think as you, as you move and you help people understand the love of Christ, one of the big opportunities here is to... Um, really pillage that language height and depth and length and i i just think i think it's really interesting and uh, professor you can speak to this and please do but i think that language of four dimensions is really interesting um because we live in 3d not 4d <laughs> and you know i was thinking about that there christians have kind of wrestled with this idea and i, I don't want to push on this too much exegetically, I would really just want to pillage the textual language a little bit. But Augustine and Origen talked about how this is, this is the cross, you know, heaven and earth, east and west, and it all comes together in, in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the love of Christ, the height, the depth, etc. And so there's a little bit of allegorizing there and things like that. But what I think is really helpful about that language is to, to try to move people from seeing Christ's love in 3D to seeing it in 4D. Like it's more delightful. It's more than you know. Like as you live with Christ um, and, and you see he loves me here, he loves me here, he loves me here, he's faithful to me here in our sin and the consequences of sin, it just never stops. So now I've talked a lot and I kind of want to hear what the professor thinks about my 4D stuff, but <laughs> you can shoot it down. Thoughts, Alan? 
Yeah, I want to talk about this gospel. It's a pretty sweet gospel. Um, I, I love the fact that Paul demonstrates his confidence in the gospel by saying we have access to God. He demonstrates his confidence in that access by praying. And, I, and, and this is an incredible prayer. Let me, let me illustrate. Uh, uh, you know what I got here? I got a, a, a one-size-fits-all vitamin. Yeah, it's kind of big, but hey, this one vitamin is like a multi-deluxe mamma jamma, whatever you got ails you, this is going to take care of vitamin. This is the only vitamin you need. Um, here, here I got an incredible screwdriver. It's like, it's a four-in-one screwdriver. You got your small Phillips, you got your big Phillips, you got your small regular, you got your big, this is all the screwdrivers you need. And then here, I got, I got a skull cap. It says, you, there's a lot of skull caps that say one size fits all. Well, this is really one size fits all. It even goes over my head. So the sweet gospel in this prayer is it is the only prayer you need. This is the all-encompassing prayer that Paul is praying for his people. He's saying, "You, I beg God that you know how powerful Christ is in you. I beg God that you experience the love of Christ in you. I beg God that you're so full of this power and this love that you can like splash it all over the place. So like no matter what you're afraid of, this is Paul's perfect prayer for you. No matter what you're wrestling with, this is Paul's perfect prayer for you. Um, no matter what you're wondering about or ignorant of or, or whatever your issue is, this prayer gets after it. You just got to know the perfect, powerful love of Christ for you and the perfect, powerful love of Christ in you. And then look out. Here, here's what I'm wondering, Jonathan and Jonathan and Timothy. What if every member of, the, of our Christian community begged God, got down on our knees and begged for each other that we all had the power to grasp God's love for us? What if we all begged God to give to us the love of God uh, for God and from God and, and sharing that love to others? That if we prayed for the fullness of God in us, you know, we, there isn't anything we couldn't figure out in terms of planting churches or troubles in churches or troubles facing Christians. Th this is the one prayer that we can pray that takes care of everything that we could ever dream of praying for in Christ. It's interesting that you bring up, you know, community, because on the one hand, what Paul's talking about is an intensely personal thing, like um, you know, the spirit dwelling in your, in your inner man, uh, what he says in Greek. And yet in verse 18, he says, together with all, all, all God's holy people. So whatever he's describing here, he intends to unfold within, within the Christian community. Yeah, he talks about patria, the family. Uh, the, the father is the fa our father is the source of all unity, and the and that unity is in Christ. And as we're as we fill up in that Christ, we enjoy the unity that we have with God and the unity that we have with other human beings. So I want to I want to get into something for a second and build on what the good professor has been doing. What, what an amazing, like, first of all, 
I, I, I was on my knees, like in my heart, like I was praying that already as you were talking about it. And I could just see that coming out of my mouth on Sunday, praying with God's people for this. Uh, but I, I think if you wanted, I want to talk just a little bit about sermon structures. I, I think there's a, a number of different approaches that you can take. One of them, I think, builds on what um, Professor Sorum was talking about. The, you could do a two-point sermon. The first one is, is um, just talking about Christ dwelling in the heart and the love of Christ. And then the second point would be how this impacts the church. You know, um, you do have that language at the end of the prayer that this is in the church, in the same, what does it say exactly? I want to I wanna get it right. Um, it talks about to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So you have, you have that idea, and, and Professor Sorum was developing that idea of the love of Christ as it works itself out in the fullness of God in our hearts. Um, I, you know, my, my pastoral heart has been, has, has bleeds um, when churches have conflict, when um, people can't get along. Um, we're recording this well in advance of when it's gonna be released. I, I doubt the polarization issues are gone, the, the things that are so difficult in real, real churches these days. This is just an incredible opportunity to gather people around the love of Christ and lift up high his cross in the midst of his people. I, I, what a valuable opportunity. Yeah, I mean, to key off something you said um, earlier, Jonathan, you talked about how, I mean, he's Paul's praying for something here, which we already have. Um, so he's praying for the indwelling of the spirit, which he even says earlier, we, we already have by virtue of being being a believer. So there's there's something going on about, uh, you know, knowing the love of Christ kind of just on a pure intellectual level versus it penetrating deeper so that it becomes like an existential thing and affects the way I live. I, I remember hearing a guy preach on this. The illustration he used was, you know, I can have all the money in my bank account, but let's say I'm in the middle of a big city and I lose my wallet, so I don't have any cash, I don't have any credit cards. I have everything. I legally possess all this wealth, but I'm not accessing it. So I'm hungry, I'm lost, I can't get a taxi. Um, and I, I think for a lot of our people, that's kind of the case with the message of Christ, that they have this intellectual, yes, Jesus loves me, and I, I think I know what that means when I die. But as far as existentially tapping into the, that, width, that breath, that depth, that width of Christ's love, so that it's affecting them, on a daily basis in the way they interact with one another, um, in the way they face challenges of their own, in the way they face success that, you know, who gets the credit for that? Um, maybe that, I don't know if this is malady or application, but I think the fact that Paul's praying for something that we already have, the indwelling of Christ and saying, well, there's something more than what you guys think that that means. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. It's, it's straight up embarrassing. That's, that's what it is. Like, in, in a sense, this is a beautiful prayer, don't get me wrong, but it's in, in some ways, it's very basic and it's embarrassing that he has to pray it. You know, it's like, I, I can't even think of when, like, it, it reminds me a little bit when he says, husbands love your wives. What an embarrassing thing for him to have to say. And it's a little bit embarrassing that he has to, like, I'm on my knees. And, and he's not, he's definitely not reaming him out. He's joyful here. He is exuberant. He is um, extolling 
God for doing this in their lives. But when you kind of invert the petitions, which is kind of what we're doing and seeing the darker side of them, there's, there's a little bit of embarrassment. And I think part of the problem, like we're, we're moving between gospel and law here, but part of the problem, I, I kept thinking about why in the world is he asking for power for them to have faith, like enough power to have faith. And why is this not passing from the cognitive to the, to, to the heart and to, to behavior, like you were saying, John. And part of the issue here, I think, is, is the only way I could think about it is computing power, like spiritual computing power. Um, try running a divine program on one of those ancient, you know, <laughs> you remember those, we're, we're all old enough, like when you would slide one of those disks in the computer, it would freeze up right away. I think it just shows our weakness, right? That that God has this program for us. We are so loved. And and then um, it doesn't, we'll, we're just like freeze up with it. We're so weak in it. And so Paul's like, give them power, Father. Give, give them power so that they can, they can um, have Christ dwell in their hearts. Give them knowledge, Father. I need you to give them knowledge so that they can know the unknowable, so that they can believe the unbelievable, so that they can do the impossible and then fill them. Like I can't, I can't, I kept thinking about like what that would be like physically so we can get it spiritually. But I, I kept going to like Thanksgiving day. Like if I'm filled to the measure, it would be on Thanksgiving day where you just had this beautiful feast and you topped it off with a glass of wine and you're just good. What if we filled our people to, to that extent with Christ and with God's good gifts and with the power of the spirit in their lives? And we give them that computing power to really get this and pass it into their lives. I think, I think just, I don't know that I have a whole lot more to say about this text except this that when i when i bring this to god's people i i want to bring it like paul brought it like i'm i'm not talking about the content and the charisma so much as just a heart that's full this is a man who prays with a with a heart on fire i mean his language here is is exuberant rhapsodic um powerful and uh, if we can fill ourselves to the brim with this scripture and go preach the love of christ oh man pulpits are going to be on fire around the nation you know <laughs> that's my prayer i'm on my knees about it thinking about that along those lines dr storm for, for you any thoughts on the uh what what's translated comprehend katalabestai um that would have more of the like to, to, to grasp or to wrestle with right i mean i think it's a fascinating word um for the for the love of christ um that you're 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 wrestling i think in secular greek it's used to talk about like um plundering a city after you ransacked it but you're, you're carrying off all this bounty and and that paul's encouraging us to carry off this this bounty the plunder um, the truth of, of, of Christ. You got any, th any thoughts on, uh, on that? Just to pick up on something Timothy said, the, this isn't language 
meant to be intellectually comprehended and, and distilled it, so much as it is to be overwhelmed by it. It's just an overwhelming outpouring uh, grand conclusion to three chapters of amazing doctrine. And it's, it's ineffable. It's, it's just overwhelming. And so he uses a lot of compound verbs, Jonathan. I think the, the thing I would point out about the specific verb you chose, it's one of a number of compound verbs where, in which he means to say thoroughly comprehend. And if you don't know what I mean by thoroughly comprehend, let me explain it by saying the width, the depth, the breadth, the length of God's love for you in Christ Jesus, this, this he pair um, above and beyond overwhelming love and power that he wants to shower on you. It, it's, it, I think he's shooting at emotions here more than intellect so that we might be moved to stop doubting and to just go the whole way with God. Uh, and, and the way of God is, you know, not only faith by in Christ to receive eternal life, that's, that's the way to God, but the way of God is living in this power. And I've, Paul said in another place, I've given you a spirit, not of timidity, but of power and of self-control and of love. So he's begging us here just to slip into sanctification a little bit, Jonathan. He's begging, you know, you got this power button in front of you. It's the on button. It's a big red power button. And he says, it's right there. Come on, people, push the button. Turn it on uh, in you and for you and through you. So it's, it's kind of overwhelming by design, uh, don't you think? Uh, you know what you could do? Oh, go ahead. For a sermon structure, if you wanted to follow that kind of idea, is like climbing the mountain and and peaking at the at the end doxologically. Pull out some nice, develop rhetorical rope like a line that that you have. I, I don't know what it would be. I haven't spent enough time thinking about it, but some kind of really cool line based on the text, and then do a textual sermon. A sort of a, a, a verse by verse approach to the sermon and just build and build and build and build and then say amen with Paul after forever and ever amen. <laughs> That's more or less Paul's structure in, in that first paragraph where he's building to his conclusion that you might have the fullness of God. Yeah. One other idea that, and this one, this one I, I'm not real high on, but because it would leave behind the prayer a little bit, although it wouldn't have to. But I, Fred Craddock's got a really um, famous sermon on a doxology in Romans. And every time I see a doxology, I think about it. And he, he imagines bringing doxology along with you wherever you go. And for him in that particular week, uh, I think he had a family member die and he, he was sitting with the grieving person and you imagine what it'd be like to say the doxology there and um and he kind of took it along with them what would it mean to remember always that to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine like what and jonathan mentioned this before 
But Luther did this. I, if you read Luther's works, it's like he, he's, he's with um, Sarah and she's laughing that how could God possibly um, provide a son? I'm barren. I've always been barren. And then, and then Luther's like Ephesians 3 verse 20. <laughs> and, then, and then he's like standing with Elijah, you know, because he's an Old Testament professor and, and he's doing the prophets of Baals or whatever. Ephesians 3 verse 20. Like if you just do a search of his, his works, it's, he's always bringing this out. Sorry, Ephesians, I couldn't hear what you and that's, said. And that's Surrey. But um, Ephesians 3 verse 20, it's just to be able to live. That would be an interesting sermon too, I guess what I was saying. Live in that doxology. You guys have any uh, thoughts for potential applications or we've kind of touched on outline, but maybe that or, or possible illustrations for this text? Well, I think, yeah, I was going <laughs> to. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Sarma, the screwdriver. I, I'm more interested in metaphor with this text. I think more than I am illustration, to be honest, like finding language, like there, there's, there's so much tension um, in the language. We're to know what we can't know in the sermon. You're to, you're to ask for what you can't imagine in the sermon. You're to grasp what you cannot grasp. There's, there's certain, um, you know, like language that gets a hold of that. Um, oceans in a thimble, um, you know, something that heaps up the text to its proper pinnacle, I think is helpful. Along those lines, like I'm just looking at verse, verse 20, and I think like something Christians wrestle with in their prayer life is they will often think I'm asking too much of God. You know, I'm asking for this, I'm asking for this. I'm, that you're asking too much and paul would say you you the problem with christians is they typically typically ask of too little uh, um they don't dream big enough as far as what he can he can accomplish in their life uh for them i like that jonathan uh, another application i'm thinking of to pick up on something i've said earlier is what what do you think you need when you're feeling weak what do you think you think you need when you're feeling afraid what do you think you need when you are facing death or trying to overcome a, a temptation or a trial? Uh, the answer to every single need that we have is knowing just how much God loves us and what he's able to do for us and through us. So the, the sanctification, I would, I would um, invite my audience to consider is, is God is the ultimate solution to any, any need that you have. Yeah, and I, I love how you just said that. Like, could, to, could we think about it like this, that to put it in, into our liturgical lessons, like what, what do you think you need to be delighted to? And there's that tension is like pleasure. You know, I don't know. Some pleasure is pretty ungodly, but what do you need to be delighted and just be enraptured? And, and for Paul, who was carried along by the Holy Spirit, it was, it was the power to know Christ. It was knowing him through and through, and yet not even beginning to know him. And it was being filled uh, to the brim with God himself. That, that's what truly delights the human being. 
Well, that even parallels, don't you think, Tim, that parallels the gospel lesson and that Jesus' response with the request to help out was, it's not quite my time. So his glory, his mission, that comes first. Um, not that he doesn't want them to have the delight of the the, the, the delight of, of a good party of, of the wine, but it's he sequences a properly that he's the highest good and everything else is uh, in service of, of that. Any final thoughts? This is amazing text. It's a unique opportunity to get one of these mountaintop uh, pericopes. Preach it, man. This is going to yeah, be great. Yeah, we could go for hours on this, but we're trying to keep it at around 40, 45 minutes. So um, unless there's any final thoughts, well, I'll say thank you and uh, appreciate your guys' time. Look forward to seeing you again next week for the third Sunday after Epiphany. Blessings.